All right, everybody. Thanks for joining Chris and myself on another episode of Alumless. We appreciate you tuning in. As you know, because you're listening, uh, of course, a loyal listener, that we are a podcast about engagement strategies in educational advancement. We talk about colleges and universities a lot, but also other types of educational institutions. I'm Ryan Catherwood. The gentleman to me on the right of my screen uh, is Chris Marshall. Uh, Alumless is a CMAC production, and uh, we try to bring CMAC, uh, bring CMAC to you. We try to bring CMAC to you uh, by way of <laughs> Alumless every other Friday around 11:30. We do try to uh, have the episode be live. Uh, although it is often the case that we do record uh, in advance of a show and we will appear in the discussion of the event as it is happening. And that is the case this time around. We are actually recording alumless just prior to the holiday break. And uh, you, uh, listener, are listening to it uh, on January the 6th. So we are grateful that you're listening. We hope that you had an awesome holiday and new year. And of course, you're you're back in the saddle um, but so Chris, you're back in the saddle, huh? I hope you had a good holiday season. It hasn't happened yet, but I hope it was good. We can pretend that it happened and that we were all coming back from a great resting break and ready to start tackling new things in the new year. So yes, I'll pretend. Well, I have to admit, I have to admit, I was a little nervous for today's episode. Um, yeah. You know, uh, it's not every day you get the chance to talk with Sue Cunningham at Case and. Um, she's kind of the, the all-star of all-stars as far as um, folks in our line of work. And uh, I don't know, were you feeling nervous at all? A, a little bit. And she'll be humble and say there's no reason for us to be because she's so sweet and such a lovely person that she'll say. But it's like in our world, it's like getting Paul McCartney on a uh, <laughs> the unicorn of Paul McCartney on, on a podcast. But we're so thrilled that she's able to do it. And we thank her for her time. We'll see her in just a minute. Yeah, absolutely. And um, very grateful for your time. We're going to bring her out uh, in just a minute. But let's talk about you know, your experience with Case. Uh, Sue Cunningham, president and CEO of Case uh, for um, over seven years now. And um, your involvement, my involvement with Case has been significant over the last uh, part of our careers. I thought maybe it would be a good way to start out with you just sort of sharing um, what is your single memory about Case, something that you've done that really stands out as uh, just sort of a, an aha moment or just a special time when you were uh, a volunteer for Case? Now, we're going to talk about it later, but it's the, the, the most memorable experience I had is when we, I sat on the task force for the engagement metrics piece that was built and loved that experience. It was wonderful. But two quick stories. 2001, when I started in the profession, I attended nine case conferences in one year. And I'm talking like the full three-day immerse topic kind of conferences because I was coming from a profession outside of this and needed to learn the business. So uh, nine conferences in 2001. But then in 2018, I had the distinction of being, I think, the only person who went to all eight district conferences and the case summit. So I can brag. <laughs> I made the circuit and I've been to all of them at some point along the way. So, yeah. That's very much hard. Involved. speaker yeah. and lots of involvement along the way as well. Well, Sue and I actually have connected before, and, and so we often talk about Australia. Um, Sue, of course, worked as the, the vice president at the University of Melbourne. I, I went to graduate school in Australia, and one of my favorite me memory of Case was actually Case Asia Pacific had me do a master class on merging mm -hmm. alumni and career services and the Gold Coast of Australia. So 
they flew me all the way over to the Gold Coast. My wife and I, I did, you know, it was a kind of an intense engagement. I mean, it was yeah. like several hours of content, but it was really one of the best professional experiences of my, of my life to, to yeah, do man. that on the Gold Coast of Australia. So, so thank you to Case, uh, Asia Pacific and, and Case more broadly. Um, all right. Well, look, we've got all we could talk about case, I think, all day long and, and all the fun stuff that we've we've done uh, with case. But let's talk to Sue Cunningham. Let's bring her out to the show so we can actually talk uh, the real deal with the real deal person here. I'll add her to the stream. Hey, Sue, There's, how's it going? She is. The good Paul McCartney see, of advancement. <laughs> well, good to see you. I've never been compared to Paul McCartney before, I have to say. Um, but it's a real pleasure <laughs> to be here. I was just desperately trying to think through some appropriate titles from Beatles songs. Um, but one didn't. You know, <laughs> I was on my Peloton this morning, and one of the, the songs was Let It Be. So, um, But very, very good to see you. And Chris, kudos to you. I think that's a record in terms of number of case conferences in one year. That's that's quite magnificent. And Ryan, I think you get the award for the furthest distance traveled <laughs> to deliver some case content. But um really yeah. pleased to be here with you both as as you described just before the holidays and in anticipation of this coming out in, in 2023. Well we're really grateful to have you and you know, we had a chance to to read the new book that you've written. Hello, that's awesome. Uh, global exchange dialogues to advance education. Nice. There you go. The plug. <laughs> Very exciting. Oh, she's got a copy right there. That, that is awesome. Well, we were fortunate enough for your assistant to send us the PDF version, which was fantastic. So uh, we had the chance to read through it and um, some great quotes, some really great conversations in that. Um, you, we brought together advancement leaders from all over the world and essentially recorded a bunch of small group brainstorming sessions. I think, um, and it, I found it really enjoyable to read and a great way to kind of break down where things are. I thought it would be great. Maybe you could share a little bit more about, about the book and why you um, set out to write it. Sure. Thank you very much. Um, and it was, as you describe, it was a series of conversations with 40 different leaders, both in advancement and philanthropic organizations and institutional leaders from around the world. And I think at the heart of it, and, and as you both described earlier, you have both been to many conferences where you have no doubt heard brilliant people speak in, on a panel or in a conversation or give a presentation. And the minute that you walk out of the room, you manage to hold on to one or two of those seeds of wisdom. And then if you're anything like me, the rest sort of goes into the ether as you go into the next session. Well, the conversations are captured in this book so that you can return to them at your leisure again and again to really reap the seeds of wisdom. Come on, reap seeds of wisdom. Why not? Um, from this group of leaders from around the world. And I think in essence, you know, my my career path has fortunate. I've had great fortune to live and work um, in the UK and in Australia and the US uh, and my case journey as a volunteer and member and, and now a CEO, the community that I've been fortunate to build of, of friends and colleagues around the world has really made me appreciate and value that no part of the world has the monopoly on brilliant ideas. And the more that one can weave together voices and uh, experiences from different places, the better off and the richer all of our careers and our lives will be. So in essence, that's what this book does. So I'm deeply grateful to everyone who participated in those conversations. Uh, and pleased to hear that you enjoyed reading it. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. I absolutely did. It was great. And um, I thought it was a unique way to, to talk through the topics at hand and, and to bring in global voices. It, you know, Chris, you're talking you about where the ideas okay, come from in the diverse array of... Whoop, am I coming through okay? Yeah, you're good. Go ahead. Can, can you hear me all right? Okay, all right. Uh, it reminded me of what you were saying about where the ideas come from in various places, but it is, it's also true when you think of your large, small alumni shops, for example, which I spent a lot of my time looking at. And, and some of the best ideas come from the single shops or the two-person shops where they have to be entrepreneurial and really experiment with new ideas versus the large shops that are, you know, generally doing great work on a consistent basis. But was there any point, a particular point of clarity for our business that you came upon, you went through this process? And even one of the exchanges was about whether or not the advancement work we do is a profession. Um, would love to hear your commentary on that. So I think for me, the, the determination of the 10 subject areas that's covered in the book was really about thinking about the future of our work and the future of advancing education. So and, and there are numerous takeaways, and I'm sure that different readers will take away different things from it. I think one is the importance of integrated advancement. And I know the language is different in different parts of the world, but in essence, as you will both know deeply, it's really vital that people working in alumni relations and advancement services and marketing and communications and fundraising are all working collaboratively together. Uh, and by doing so, one is going to be far more successful at advancing the institution. And I think it's a moot point. You know, the conversation in the book, some institutions have that all under one umbrella and others have it split out into different areas. And I think the the internal structure is less important than the, than the connectivity and engagement. Um, another area that I think is, and I hope is uppermost in many of our minds, is the whole work around diversity, inclusion and belonging. Uh, and the conversations that I had there with a number of colleagues was really interesting in thinking about the journey we've come on and the journey we still have ahead of us uh, in creating teams that reflect the diversity of the societies in which they're operating and ensuring that no matter where people are doing our work, they feel that they belong and they feel included. Uh, and we're on a journey and Case is really dedicated and committed to that journey, uh, but we need to remain committed and really focused on it. Yes, incredibly important aspect of the work we do, and, and one that you touch on nicely in the in almost several of the chapters, right, have um, questions of diversity, equity, inclusion, sort of in, as a thread throughout the book, which I, I thought was really important. And I think you actually touched just a little bit on the question I'm about to ask, in which you, you talk about integrated advancement. Um, but I was thought I would ask you about the current state, right, of alumni engagement and its role in the integrated advancement model. Uh, you mentioned in the book that the discussion with the four alumni leaders demonstrates the extent to which they are all thinking about and speaking about the language of marketing and communications, uh, emphasizing how the face of the alumni relations team has changed profoundly over the last 20 years. What did you mean when you said thinking and speaking in the language of marketing and communications? Well, thank you. And it's a really great question. I remember the conversation with those four professionals and the ex genuinely, I mean, they are they are talking in terms of very personalized engagement, thinking in terms of the the names that we are all familiar with, the Amazons of this world and so on, who who connect with us 
as individuals, they connect with us on the basis of our habits of engagement with them and the desire and the shift towards real segmentation in alumni engagement work and greater and greater sophistication on what that looks like. I remember that uh, towards the end of the chapter, I asked each of the participants what their future vision was. Uh, and Christine Fairchild, who heads up alumni relations at, at the University of Oxford, talked about wanting to get to the place where each alumnus has a portal where she or he can come in, can indicate the things that they want to engage with in the institution, that there are means of tracking that engagement and really, really personalizing their interaction with the institution. Now, I know that depending on the institution and the investment, different organizations are at different points on that journey. Um, but the the that sense of that's where we're headed and, and we're so, it, it is so long ago, I think now that when people thought about alumni engagement, they thought about it simply in terms of events and bringing people physically or in the in the pandemic context virtually together. The, the approach and the expertise of those working in this field has become far more sophisticated and far more targeted. And it's a really, really interesting evolution. In fact, we, we actually just had a conversation in the last hour where we were describing to uh, you know the, the folks who we were working with at a university about the the percentage of the, the alumni leader of the past, which was say 80 percent uh, event based, twenty percent volunteer manager, is now something more like forty percent communications based and thirty percent volunteer manager. Ten percent, like there's a the makeup has shifted around. Do you, do you can kind of concur with that? Or is that sort of what you're alluding to, that the leaders have to actually have a different set of skills and that's really important? Very much so. I remember early on in the pandemic, we were holding something that we named Case to Gathers, which were bringing people together over, over similar themes. And one of the early ones, there was a conversation where one of the participants was an alumni relations professional who was saying that one of the opportunities that she was really looking forward to proving in the entire virtual environment was how alumni engagement could work without those in-person events. She said she'd been arguing for years at her institution that they needed to do fewer events and that they could be more successful through direct communications, but she hadn't been afforded the platform to prove it. And one of the bizarre silver linings of the pandemic was an illustration of how much one can engage effectively with alumni. Of course, there were a huge lift, a huge increase in the number of virtual events, but thinking about beyond events, which is I think very much what, what you're suggesting, Ryan, into that much more focused, much more sophisticated uh, communications engagement. And, and as I know we'll talk more about shortly, the the alumni engagement metrics and thinking about the different pillars that, that Chris helped to imagine and create um, but I think the whole face of alumni relations, which has a long history in this part of the world, uh, is is moving into a very, very interesting and exciting domain. Agreed. And thanks for bringing up the case metrics. That was uh, the highlight of my case involvement, as I mentioned earlier. And I'll never forget the very first meeting, Sue. I, I think you came in at the beginning and left this to our Gary Olson, who was the chair of that group, did a phenomenal job. But I don't know if you recall the story that came out of that first meeting was there was a four hour discussion. So we, we this is the journey that we started on. We, we said, let's find alumni 
what does an alum look like? And we spent four hours debating on what the definition of alumni was. And it was foundational in the work. I mean, ultimately, it came back to anyone who's had a previous academic relationship with the institution, regardless of degree or not, was something we would consider alum. Um, but in, in the book, you talked about a, a moment where you had a discussion with some professionals, Christine and others, um, and we talked about this topic and how they devote their time and divvy up resources towards experiential volunteer communications and philanthropy. What was the takeaway from it? And you know, to me, metrics are critical in coach where we measured, I was a swimming coach, and measured this to the hundredth of a second. We had a scoreboard and we saw how we were doing. Um, in our industry, 20 years ago, we had nothing, and here we are. For I'm so proud that for now we've built this model that I think is, to me, it's a starting point, and we'll have other places where we'll grow with it. But what does it mean for you, and what does it mean for Case, and how has it been received, and any other conversations you had about it, where what we could do in the future with it? Well, I have to say, Chris, that one of the things that gives me great pleasure, I have the privilege of being on the board of trustees for the University of San Diego. And when I sit at the advancement committee at the university and Rick Virgin, the VP there, puts up his slide of um, metrics for the previous quarter. And the, one of the metrics in there every time is their alumni engagement metric based on, the, I know, absolutely. And as you say, five years ago, that box would have been empty. There was, and I know that different institutions had developed, some had developed their own means of tracking. But for me, this is... Powerful. And again, you describe that first meeting very accurately and me being there at the beginning and leaving people to get on with it is is superb because then the great work happens when I'm not in the room. So I think that that's that's an important thing for me to do and come back and try all of the things that have happened. And it was again, it was You're a good leader. That's what should do. But I remember Donna Arbeid, who was chairing the commission at that time, saying, should we really go for this? And we all agreed that absolutely we should go for it. And it you know, I've, I've worked in, in several universities and I know that data is just so critically important in, in achieving strategic outcomes and goals and to be blunt in working with institutional leaders and making the case for increased investment in our work, that data is absolutely vital. And again, five years ago, some institutions were gathering data in this space, but there was no comparative data around the world. And now, in, in the latest survey, which I think was the third time out of the box, we have something like 360 institutions from 16 countries participating. Yeah. And I think so early on in its journey, that's amazing. So I think, Chris, you were part of something that is is really going to be increasingly impactful and important. And I look forward to the numbers of participants growing year on year incrementally. I think it's, it's absolutely core to the important work that alumni engagement professionals are leading in their institutions. I was just going to note how how yeah, um, stressful it probably would be to be the foundational the pres like on the uh, with Sue on the board of San Diego State. Uh, gosh, that'd be a tough uh, you know to present <laughs> to that audience. You know, I, if I was the advancement leader, I'd, it sounds stressful. Oh, Ryan, he's and it's University Ryan, of San Diego. I don't want to misrepresent what I'm on, but uh, no, he does a great job, brilliant job. Um, Ryan, real quick, we were gonna, if I could mention, go ahead, the, yeah, the case summit. The case summit in Chicago, there were three or four sessions where schools presented on how they're using the data. And it was just so it was a similar kind of reaction. It was like your baby, you know, walking or something. Um, and I, I tell clients to this to, to, to this day that the case metrics are the crawl 
in the crawl, walk, run, fly. And, you know, we can count correctly. We can correlate. We can, we can uh, use um, uh, predictive modeling eventually. eventually. The fly to me is predictive modeling where we can decide what we should do to move the needle on engagement is going to come from that. The breath engagement is going to be helpful. The depth of engagement is going to be even more impactful, I think, as we go. So it's a wonderful start. And kudos to you for leading us down that path. Yeah, um, definitely kudos. But sort of stepping back a little bit, Sue, thinking about a, a broader global view of alumni engagement, one that you were able to sort of bring uh, to life in the book a little bit. I thought it would be a good opportunity since you have had experience working in the UK and Australia and also here in the US to sort of, for those folks here in the US um, who don't really think about international alumni engagement, some of the differences in how organizations in different countries are thinking about alumni engagement, I thought it'd be a great opportunity for sort of share more about um, how advancement leaders are thinking about it in those, some of the differences perhaps in those countries. And then also maybe how developing areas are thinking about it. Um, you know, areas that we may not think about as having alumni programs in, in Central South America, some of those universities are elsewhere around the globe. I had someone reach out to me from Africa, a PhD student who was studying uh, fundraising and communications. And she's, she said her faculty advisors didn't think she'd be able to even put together a chapter on alumni relations because she didn't think there would, there would be enough information out there to find about it, which was really interesting. And I actually sent her um, towards your book, uh, but uh, I thought it would be a good opportunity to sort of share more about um, your view of alumni relations as, as global and um, where it's headed in the future. Thank you. Well, um, and happy to respond to that. And I, I guess there, there are many, many things that come to mind when you raise the question. I think, I think there is an increasingly a growing understanding of how strategic alumni relations is in different parts of the world. Uh, if I start off by going to the Southern Hemisphere and thinking a bit about an Australian context, uh, and of course, the both Europe, particularly the UK and Australia, have a deep history of international students. I mean, in Australia, pre-pandemic, it was about 35% of students were from outside Australia. Uh, and then in the UK, 10 or 15%, and therefore thinking of alumni engagement in terms of global outreach. And so that's very much informed that work. So much so that in Australia, one of the Australian states, Victoria, and then the federal government started to develop alumni programs so that they recognized that people who had studied in Australia and then gone back to their home countries and set up successful businesses and so on, these were people who were of value to Australia in terms of inward investment in the country. So the recognition of governments for the importance of alumni engagement, and, and I've seen more of that recently in the context of other places, I think is, is really interesting and valuable. Although I remember there was some sensitivity when I was at Melbourne, when the government was saying, can you please give us all of your alumni data? And it was, well, <laughs> hold on a minute. Um, but the, but, the, but the, the determination and appreciation of that value, I think is, is really important. Also, we've seen from this country and elsewhere during the, during the pandemic, the outreach and uh, Marina Tan Harper talked about in this book of, of, of the engagement with alumni in different parts of the world or families more broadly, and the sophistication with which those, those engagements would happen over dinner or different activities where half of the room would be in one part of the world and half the room in the other and the fluidity with which we became more and more able to do that. Um, 
in Latin America, uh, and as you know, we have members and an and office in, in Mexico City and members across Latin America, we developed a series of seven month online programs. The first one out was fundraising and the next one out was the one in alumni relations. So we now have the Diplomado de Vinculación con Egresados, which is a seven month online program. And I think in many parts of the world where alumni relations doesn't necessarily have the maturity or advancement, which large doesn't have the maturity that has in many institutions in the US, alumni engagement is seen as a real starting point. So if we look at some European institutions, if we look at some Latin American institutions, the sense that we all understand that it's critical to engage before one starts to seek philanthropic support or volunteer support or a whole range of other support. So that that engagement is critically important. And the final thing I'd say, I was on a call the other day with a group of leaders from the international school sector. And they were saying that the whole landscape for international schools is shifting with them being less and less about providing uh, schools for those people who are moved by their corporations every three years to different places because COVID and the pandemic has shifted that to being places where, like in other independent schools, people start at the age of five and go through 18 or 11 through 18 or whatever the age group. And therefore, for the first time, international schools can start to think more seriously about alumni engagement and the opportunities therein, which was much harder when the norm, the historic population of international schools may go to four or five during their their K through twelve experience. So I thought, yeah. I thought that was very interesting as well. So my sense is that alumni engagement writ large is becoming far far more vibrant. And it was great. I was at sessions in Singapore earlier this year, and then in Australia, to be able to show slides from the alumni engagement metrics, demonstrating, uh, for example, in Latin America, that experiential is the most engaged form of alumni engagement right now. Whereas uh, in, in, um, in Europe, it's communication. So just seeing differences in different parts of the world, very interesting. Yeah, I think independent schools really are an interesting sort of lens with which to look through uh, towards uh, alumni engagement and advancement. And I've always been interested also in the alignment that has advancement in admissions under one director of advancement in independent schools, sort of thinking about alumni as a part of not just a philanthropy strategy, but an admissions and enrollment and retention strategy. Parents, of course, are in that mix too. But as enrollment continues to be a struggle for colleges and universities, I often think about in that model of independent schools and how they're really sort of consolidating around those revenue streams and building uh, a coordinated communication strategy around it. Um, I think there's something really interesting happening there that we can learn a bit from, from the independent schools. I agree. Um, I've got another question for you. All right, so let's talk about um, the conversations you've had with advancement leaders. On a scale of one to 10, how important do you think they'd rank alumni engagement in terms of importance? Well, obviously, it depends who you're talking to. Um, I think it would, I I would say it's between seven and eight. Okay. I really do. And, you know, when we see context, because, again, as, as you are both incredibly familiar, you know, the historic and I think really um, skewed perception of alumni engagement was its only purpose was around philanthropy. And, of course, philanthropy is really important, and there are so many other impact of alumni engagement. Uh, and I remember 
in the January of 2020, for example, being invited to be on a roundtable at the University of Washington, chaired by their president, Anna Mari Kause, where we were talking about uh, the work that had happened in the state of Washington to bring together corporations and government and all of the educational institutions to um, lobby government, and it was ultimately achieved to introduce a new tax on major corporations to provide uh, funding for financial assistance for broadening access to higher education institutions. Uh, and alumni played an absolutely critical role in it. University of Washington have a very active alumni advocacy program, and the alumni were front and center of, of lobbying government, so much so that a politician who was uh, part of this round table from the state government said, you know, that that every other day or every other hour, someone and so an alumnus of one of the institutions in the University of Washington would be on the phone or on email saying, you have to support this bill, you have to support this bill, so much so that he said that ultimately they started to put the support of higher education in their manifesto because they saw it as an election winner. Now, if only we could shift that to the 49 yeah. other states. I just thought <laughs> incredible power of alumni advocacy. And I think a number of institutions are now doing great work in this space, and I'm excited to see more of it. They're, they're a hugely powerful force for advancing education in this country and in other parts of the world. I love that story. The, Uni the University of Washington, um, is, their alumni program is led by Paul Rucker, who's a good friend. And he told me one time that um, when they think of their donor stewardship that they do, they think of their top donor as the state of Washington. So they steward that donor appropriately because they want to make sure what you just described continues. Uh, and it's a really interesting you know, way to conceptualize it, that they think of it as their top donor. Um, Absolutely. I want to ask you about the, go ahead. Sorry. No, carry on, please. Okay. The the the, the book had many great storylines and, and, and several impressions that it left on me, but was there any that came to any lasting impressions that you had or a distinct conversation with either an individual or a panel group that, that you recall fondly? A lasting impression that you had any of those Well, I I'd, I'd reference a couple. One was in the context where we were talking about uh, the value of institutions working beyond boundaries, both within the institutions and across institutions. And where we've seen, as we know, I mean, just describing the situation at the University of Washington, uh, or where we've seen some really transformational philanthropy, for example, we're seeing greater and greater occasions where institutions have come together for a common good, or where we've seen within an institution people coming out of their their silos in order to collaborate to make a transformational difference for the institutions. And I remember President Kause using the phrase, giving serendipity a push. Uh, and I just thought that was really powerful in terms of, we all know strategically, there are times that things happen as a result of planning and hard work. And there are times that things happen, there's an element of luck, but then how we use that luck and how we use that serendipity. So that was one. The other one I'd reflect on briefly is uh, we were talking about leading through times of crisis. And uh, in that conversation, uh, one of the participants was Imad Balbaki, who is the vice president at the American University in Beirut. And, you know, they've had numerous crises from the major bomb a couple of years ago to the pandemic to a huge impact on their currency. Um, and I remember asking Imad, how we know when a crisis is over? 
And he smiled in the inimitable way that Imad smiles and said, I suppose we know a crisis is over when the next one begins. Um, I think those are great. Those are great quotes. And um, I think putting together the book, I suspect, was uh, a really powerful experience. Uh, when you think back on it, um, was there anything that you would do differently in assembling the book uh, or um, any takeaways from writing a book in general? <laughs> well, I, I think I started off, you know, everyone says or that, that, that everyone has a book in them. I have to say at the beginning of the this journey, I wasn't convinced that I had the capacity to do it um, and or the ability to do it. And as you've seen, the result is, as with, in my experience, all good things are getting a group of brilliant people to come together to make something happen. So um, I'm incredibly grateful to everyone, as I said earlier, who participated. But I think one does underestimate because having undertaken all of the interviews and having uh, the the manuscripts and 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 them being boiled down and then all of the work of refinement and introductions and summaries and 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 bringing it all together. I had um, a, a wonderful partner in, in Steve Pelletier who who really helped in in editing and pulling it all together and and other colleagues. But I, I guess the only thing I'd reflect on was there was a pause of I would guess about nine months at the beginning of the pandemic where I dropped it completely because because I had to focus on on leading case at a time which was more challenging than any that anyone could remember. Uh, so all in all, I think it took about two and a half to three years. So I think I think in retrospect, no pandemic, it would have happened sooner. Um, but no, I, I'm in. It, it's I didn't anticipate at the beginning. I guess the the amount of work, um, and yet it feels to me, and I'm. I, I, it's hard for me to judge because <laughs> I'm so close to it. Um, but I'm I'm really honoured to to be able to invite people to participate in this. And I have to say that that everyone I invited said yes, uh, and I think it's indicative of people's huge commitment and and willingness at no matter what time of night or day. Because obviously, getting everyone on calls, you had to have people at different times of day because of different times of the time in different parts of the world. But just just the huge passion that people have for advancing education and how supportive people are of case, we're incredibly lucky. So normally what we do at this time is is we um, depart the live stream version of of alumnus and we head over to a, a Zoom room that's not live to record the podcast edition. But given uh, your your star power, Chris uh, <laughs> and I thought it would be great if we just pressed on through and made made your interview available to everyone. Uh, regardless, uh, and make the podcast. We'll we'll still put it up on the podcast, but we want to make sure our LinkedIn listeners uh, get to hear our full conversation. So, if, I know there's a few folks who are like, "Well, this has gone longer than 30 minutes," uh, but we're gonna we're gonna make sure the whole conversation is available. And Chris, maybe you could just at the end of the show, we'll announce who is on uh, the the show uh, at the end. I think it's January 20th is the next date. Um, so, yep. so we'll press right on and keep going. And um, it's great again to have you. Thank you for being on Alumless, and we're um, thrilled to talk with you. So, you've been at Case now better than than seven years. Um, what's the accomplishment that you're most proud of, Ben, since you've been at Case? Uh, I think the first is probably thinking about our strategic plans. Really. Um, my first year at Case, which does feel like a very long time ago, 
developing the strategic plan and talking to about two and a half thousand people to do so was an amazing gift in terms of that listening tour. Um, and several things emerged from that plan, which just feel really important in terms of supporting our members. Uh, one was the what resulted in the publication in March of 2021 in the Global Reporting Standards, which, you know, every profession, if we think about architects or doctors or um, you name it, have a set of reporting standards. And CASE has built reporting standards for about 40 years, um, but they were very, very US focused. <clears throat> and as a global organization with members in 80 countries, it felt like we needed standards for the profession writ large. So as with all the wonderful things CASE does, we brought together a superb group of volunteers who spent two and a half to three years really developing and refining these standards. And on one level, it's a 309 page publication of, of how to consistently count philanthropic engagement. On another level, it is, uh, I, I think the sort of reputational uh, document to support our work and support the advancement of higher ed and higher and, and secondary education. It contains our principles of practice, our ethical standards, and so on. And it really sets out, I think, if institutions adhere to these standards and have the consistency that they that they espouse, then as one president said in a panel discussion we had about a year and a half ago, it protects the reputation of every institution. It talks, for example, about donor influence and what's appropriate and what's not appropriate. Uh, and as we know, some of the negative media pieces in relation to philanthropy sadly reflect uh, those rare but nevertheless highly amplified occasions where there's discomfort. So, so I think the standards and the adherence to standards is something that we're incredibly proud to have achieved and something that we're really committed in our current strategic plan to seek to have all of our 3,000 plus members around the world sign up to over the coming years. Um, a second piece is the case competency model. So during uh, the last few years, we defined the eight competencies that we think it's critical that anyone working at any level in our profession uh, is familiar with and engaged with from the ability to think strategically, to emotional intelligence, to financial acumen, to a whole set of, of competencies which now inform our career journey framework, which is building out over the next few years so that anyone coming into advancement, whether they're coming into communications mid-career or beginning their career as alumni relations professional, can see the trajectory over six stages of their career and what their professional expertise is and opportunities to learning can be across the piece. Uh, and the final thing I'd say is coming back to what we were talking about a moment ago around alumni engagement metrics and bringing all of our our benchmarking surveys around core metrics, bringing in the voluntary support of education survey into cases portfolio surveys, and really thinking in a focused way about how we <clears throat> how we compare apples with apples across the sector. And the most exciting new addition to this, which is currently being piloted with 17 institutions, is an inclusion index, which will really create the mechanism in this important diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging work of an institution being able to say in their advancement teams, okay, this is a measure of where we now are on inclusion, and therefore this is the journey we need to go on to become a more diverse and inclusive organization than we are today. So that's just a handful, but there are so many more that, that so many have contributed to to bring case to where we are in 2022. Yeah, tons of really important work uh, creating some global standards, uh, reporting standards. The, the, but the Case Global Reporting Standards project that you mentioned, um, obviously, it's very important for the organization and for the profession. 
uh, are all those available now? Is that still forthcoming? Like what, if you could sort of share, you know, what advancement offices should be thinking about, how they should be thinking about, you know, the global reporting standards and, and adopting them at their own shops. So the Case Global Reporting Standards, please go onto our website. We include now a, a digital edition with every membership. It seemed crazy that we were saying, here are the reporting standards for the profession. Uh, and as members of Case, you can only access them if you pay for them. So we encourage people to buy additional digital copies and printed copies, but every member gets a digital copy um, as part of their membership. Uh, we also think it's incredibly important that advancement professionals have a handle on them, but also institutional leaders and trustees. So we're working to promulgate that deepening understanding. Uh, and so, for example, there was a recent long article in, in Trusteeship magazine, uh, because again, it's all very well for an advancement professional saying, this is how we're going to measure the outcomes of this philanthropic campaign, for example, and for trustees say, no, 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 we should be counting everything plus the kitchen sink to be able to show or for, for trustees say, we want to allow a donor to help us pick the next Dean of X or, or Professor of Y. All of these things are really clearly set out in the standards. And I think what's important as these standards evolve, they currently um, reflect the alumni engagement metrics, but we're really keen as they develop for them to have much more in relation to core metrics for alumni relations, marketing communications and fundraising. So they, they truly support the full portfolio of the advancement professions. Yeah. Yeah, we uh, we, we script out these questions and I'm looking ahead at the, my next question through, and it talked about what do you see for the future? What are the things that you need to be working on moving forward? And you just mentioned global reporting standards, the career competencies, the inclusion index. Is there anything else that's on the list moving forward? <laughs> big picture items <laughs> that case is working on i think a piece that really um i think about a lot so one of the enablers of our last strategic plan was transitioning our organization to being a truly global one and let me explain a bit more what i mean about that so when i arrived at case for example we had 11 fiduciary boards that had grown up over our history, uh, will be 50 in, in the year after next, or next year when this comes out. Um, and one of the recommendations of the last strategic plan was we needed to revisit that governance model in order to make the organization mm -hmm. as impactful as it could be for its members worldwide. So as you know, we went through a long journey to redesign, refine, consult, more consult, more consult and collaborate with those existing entities to create what we have today, which is one fiduciary board and a series of regional councils and district cabinets. Um, so we, and we also, at the same time, created a single entity, which now all of our offices around the world are part of as a, as a LLC, also created systems like a single bank account, a mechanism when I arrived, if I called a colleague in London, it was an international call, now we're on the same phone system. So, so the, we built the walls of what it is to be a truly global organization, but we now are really focused on building the culture. And as we know, culture takes longer uh, and really thinking about how we're most effective as being a truly global organization. So when someone engages with the case product, whether they be in Germany or whether they be in Georgia, that it's, um, it's case and it's relevant to them and they're not feeling this is culturally not attuned to where I am. So that that shift and that journey is something that that we're focused on, and it'll take longer, but I think it's incredibly important. 
Do you, do you have time Absolutely. to take a breath ever and relax? Is it possible in your role? I can't imagine. Sure. Um, I mean, I mentioned being a trustee at the University of San Diego. I'm also honored to be on one of my first loves in life is theater. And I'm a, I'm a director on the board of the Signature Theater, which is a theater company not far from where I live. Um, so absolutely. I mean, I'm I'm not sure I'm very good at adhering to work-life balance, but I love my work so much. And, you know, when I remember early on when I was at Case, I was constantly surprised when I'd be at a Case conference or program and volunteers who were giving of their time and efforts would say, Sue, it's incredibly good of you to be with us. And I was thinking, but this is my job and I love doing this. So right. I think I, I think I'm incredibly fortunate. I know I'm incredibly fortunate to be leading an organization I care deeply about and engaging with people around the world who are incredibly generous and passionate and open to sharing their their expertise and their wisdom. So I, um, that I, I think I think I get great joy out of my work and I get great joy out of out of family and theater and and the pleasures of what I do. So no, I'm 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 very happy and and relaxing and putting my feet up. My husband can attest that watching bad detective movies on the on the TV is certainly something that I do not infrequently. <laughs> Guilty pleasure, bad detective television. Nice. Bad is that the investigation ID channel? That's as long uh, as there's not too much blood. I can't do blood, but as a part. <laughs> you like a good reenact a good crime reenactment, right? That's funny. I I have a, a, a not a follow up a new quite new line here, but I want to get your take on this because I think a lot of our case colleagues are dealing with the struggle around hiring and finding talent, retaining talent. Any tips that you have for folks out there of, of what you're seeing and where you need some examples of some schools that have figured it out and are recruiting some good? Because right now it's a every single one of my clients has multiple, and this is an alumni engagement. Now. And that's just advancement in the alumni engagement space. Every single client is hiring multiple positions. So I was on a call the other day with um, I have the privilege of teaching on our case academy, which is a, a leadership program, which is a, an eight part program based on competency model. And I was asking members of my cohort group, which numbers 13 people, whether we were all talking about about the understaffing of our organizations and therefore the huge weight that everybody carries and only one person on the call said, actually, our team is fully staffed. We're feeling good. We're feeling so. I, I, I completely concur with what you're experiencing um, uh, and what we're hearing from institutions all over the world, literally all over the world. Um, I, I think I'd say a couple of things. One is, you know, one sees incredibly creative things. One often hears about growing one's own and all the rest of it. But I think, particularly again, if we're coming back to this diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging lens. How have our historic recruitment practices unknowingly meant that we're really limiting our outreach about who could come and make a big difference in our organization? So how do we rethink and refine so that we're broadening our reach? Um, and the work that my colleague Rob Henry is leading here at Case and working with different institutions in, in focusing in on that, I think, is, is really important. Um, another piece, uh, Case's is dedicated, as you know, through our graduate trainee programs and our and our annual internship programs in really building diversity in the profession. And for institutions that haven't had an opportunity to plug into either of those things, I encourage you to do so. We have about 100 interns a year, many of whom, the majority of whom, when they complete university, go into our profession. Uh, and the graduate trainees, which we have about 25 a year, I'd love to quadruple that. 
Um, so if institutions are interested, we can grow it accordingly because we get such brilliant, brilliant people on both of those programs. And they both give me immense joy actually meeting some of the participants. So, so please do reach out if we can help you in that way. I was a quick follow up. Just I was I thought um, on the subject. I w- I've often wondered whether or not we ask too much of alumni leaders. We just talked earlier in the broadcast about all the things we expect of them to be effective communicators, volunteer managers, event planners, all these things. Like, do we make it too hard to find the right talent to lead our teams? And I guess I, another question is: Does that make it less? good to be in this line of work? I mean, is it is it less attractive now than it than it used to be for some reason? Or do you think it's more of a, a market thing? There's just so many jobs open right now that, and there's so much more flexibility in a lot of cases where people are taking remote jobs, right? Instead of a fully work from home. And so and as a guy who works fully remote from home, both of us, right? Uh, it kind of would be hard to go back to a scenario where I was on campus every single day. But I just as a follow up question, I was curious if you thought, A, are we making it too hard for people to are we expecting too much of alumni leaders in terms of their talents? And, and two, do you think it's at all less attractive to be in our line of work than maybe it used to be? Well, so and if we get into the sort of fully remote in-person office working, we could have another three hours on this. Sure. <laughs> uh, maybe we shouldn't. Okay, in case we've got, we're fortunate to have the majority of our staff in their offices around the world three days a week, and I'm I'm loving that that yeah. engagement and interaction and innovation again that happens as a result of that and collaboration. Um, I hope the answer is that it, these roles are as attractive as ever. I think every profession right now you know unemployment rate is somewhere hovering around the three percent in this country i mean it's it's tough 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 to recruit to any area and um, one of the slides that again when thinking about presenting this data a few months ago that really felt to me like it tells it as it is was it was a comparative slide of different parts of the world different institutions in different parts of the world the number of alumni served by the number of alumni relations staff. And then the final column was the number of engaged alumni, because, of course, institutions have a huge variety in the number of alumni. The the constant in every country from this data was that the the number of engaged alumni was directly proportionate to the number of alumni professionals. Now, we three say, well, of course, that's a no-brainer. Now we have the data with which to prove that investment yep. in this work is important. And if I if I think particularly if I think about parts of the world which as a result of the pandemic have seen significant internal cuts, that cutting budgets for alumni engagement work is it, it, we're seeing it happen in different places and it's such a short-term uh and and destructive. Um, strategy, understandable where institutions have to pull back on on investment. And at the same time, there is the profound correlation between the two and the critical, critical work that alumni do to advance the success of their institution. I really hope that institutions, as their budgets build back up, reinvest in an area which I think, again, for professionals, that's an area which can be profoundly demotivating, just not to begin to have the resources to do all that the professionals know is possible. So, so that's an area where I think there may be a sense of, of some being demoralized. And yet I, I believe and see that budgets are being built back up as we're emerging. And I, I really hope that that's sustained because it's, it's critical to the absolutely at the core of all work that we want to do in, in external engagement. 
Yeah. Thank you. Um, I agree. I think Chris, Chris does too, right? Um, we're big believers in the yeah. investment of, of engagement strategies. And as um, uh, we've created a podcast, uh, in fact, to, to talk about just, just that, uh, we believe how important it is. But uh, last question, we, we always like to ask our uh, guests before they leave us, and we're so grateful for your time, is where do you find inspiration in the work that you do? I, it seems like you have a variety of sources for it. Uh, authors, uh, fellow practitioners that you truly admire, uh, anything that really sort of stands out as our parting uh, a parting area that folks might be able to look towards. Sure, thank you. Well, I, I tend to look in many different places for inspiration. I, I get a lot of inspiration from interactions with individuals and having the opportunities to to meet, to learn. I mean, I, I talked the other day about meeting with my cohort group. Just hearing about people at different stages of their career is is really powerful and engaging. I, I'm also fortunate to be able to visit different campuses. I was at the University of Nebraska for three days this fall, going to my first Big Ten football game, but meeting a number of colleagues there, meeting chancellors, meeting the president, hugely inspiring. And similarly at Brown uh, in the same period of time. Uh, also this, this autumn, our regional council in Europe met at EMBL, which is in Heidelberg, which is the European Molecular Biology Lab, which is a research institute, uh, which receives funding from 27 different nation states where the, the executive director of the Institute, who I had the privilege of meeting, talked about the fact that every five years, this funding uh, needs to be renewed and he needs to be reaching out to each of these states uh, on a recurrent basis, because if one drops out, they might all drop out. So the importance of maintaining and sustaining those deep relationships in order that they continue to invest in this, in this research institute, which brings together the the, the most dynamic and cutting edge uh, research into, into, um, into bi biological and microbiological research was just fascinating. So as you can hear, conversations, meeting, being in places, engaging with people, and then just keeping tabs on what's happening through the sector, like all of us through the daily emails from, from Wonky in the UK or Times Higher to the Chronicle here to Inside Higher Ed, just, just keeping tabs on what's going on, I think is critically important. Um, but first and foremost, I think it's people. I find people really inspiring and I'm fortunate to connect with many. Yes. Well, we are immensely grateful for Thank your time you. uh, today. Thank you so much. And Chris, you had one follow-up and then you were going to announce the next guest. Yeah, go ahead. One follow-up. Can you hold up your book so our viewers can see it one more time? And then we go. if you're listening on audio, we're talking Global Exchange Dialogues to Advance Education is the name of the book. Where can people find or get a copy of that book? www.case.org. And thank you. <laughs> Absolutely. Thank you so much for doing this. We really appreciate your time. Well, thank you very much for the opportunity both and um, wishing you a happy holidays. And I know this will be broadcast after the holidays. So I hope that they were wonderful. Absolutely. <laughs> we'll be back on uh, January the 20th with Patrick Aubach from right. the University of Southern California, one of our favorite people in the space. I have a great conversation prepared for uh, Patrick. Uh, but thanks again, Sue. Uh, we are grateful to have you on alum list. Thanks for the listeners for uh, checking in here on LinkedIn, on YouTube, or on the podcast edition. And we'll see you next time.